state of Mysore has always been a leader in many respects. Despite being under the British suzerainty, the state was a harbinger of democratic governance. With the rendition of Mysore on 25th March 1881, 50 years of direct rule by the British commissioners over Mysore state came to an end and the young Maharaja, His Highness Sri Chamarajendra Wadiyar was invested with ruling powers. The 23rd Maharaja of Mysore, His Highness Sri Chamarajendra Wadiyar and his advisors had broached the subject of the constitution of a deliberative assembly with the Secretary of State, Government of India, much before the actual transfer of power. The Viceroy of India in his dispatch in 1979 said it was premature to introduce in the beginning an institution like the Deliberative Assembly which had not been tried in British India. Undaunted by the refusal of the British government, the young king, all of 18 years, issued orders for the constitution of an assembly on 25th August 1881, just five months after assuming the reins of administration. The order stated that His Highness the Maharaja is desirous that the views and objects which his government has in view in the measures adopted for the administration of the province should be better known and appreciated by the people for whose benefit they are intended. And he is of the opinion that a beginning towards the attainment of the object may be made by an annual meeting of the representative landlords and merchants from all parts of the province. This order can be considered as the Magna Carta of the people of Mysore, the first modern democratic institution in princely India. It declared that it is the duty of the government to set itself right in the eyes of its people. It recognized that it is necessary for a government to convince the public about the worthiness of its motives and the soundness of its policies. In other words, it is clear admission of the principle that a government should submit itself to judgment and therefore to the guidance of its citizens. The annual meeting was conveniently held at Mysore immediately after the close of the Dasara festival. The first assembly, the members of which had all been nominated by district officers, was attended by 144 members and held on 7th October 1881. It was a matter for gratification that after the representative assembly was instituted in Mysore, the government of India resolved upon a comprehensive scheme for extending self-government in local matters throughout the British territories in India. In the beginning, the members were selected by the officials of the government. An order dated 13th August 1887, titled Constitution and the Rules of Procedure 1887 
gave definite rules for the selection of members, etc. This was replaced by the Constitution and the Rules of Procedure, 1891, which replaced the selection of members by an election by similarly qualified people in the respective taluks based on their educational qualification or land revenue paid or house and shop tax paid by them. Maximum number of members fixed under the above rules were 351 with a tenure of three years. This was amended in 1894 to reduce the strength to 276 among other things. This goes on to prove how the voice of the people were heeded to time and again. On 28 December 1894, Maharaja, His Highness Sri Chamarajendra Vadiyar, who was at Calcutta with his family, died due to diphtheria. His 10-year-old son, His Highness Sri Krishna Raja Vadiyar IV, ascended the throne on 1st February 1895 and Her Highness the Maharani Avaru of Vani Vilasa Sanidhana was appointed as regent to carry on the administration during the minority of her son. On 8th August 1902, Maharaja, His Highness, Sri Krishna Raja IV, assumed powers after attaining majority. However, all legislative measures which were required for a progressive administration mostly followed those introduced for British India and the modifications required for their adoption in Mysore were made by the executive government in consultation with the British resident and were promulgated in the state with the sanction of the Maharaja. As time went on, however, the necessity of a legislative council came to be felt. The year 1907 represented a landmark in the constitutional progress of Mysore. And in March 1907, a regulation was passed authorizing its establishment. It was a small body to begin with, five non-officials and five official members besides the members of the Executive Council with the Divan as the President of the Council with the sole purpose of making laws. After an experience of the working of the Legislative Council for about eight years, it was found that the improvements in certain directions were needed and these were affected by Regulation 1 of 1914. With this strength of Council and representation to non-officials, increased with increase of powers to the council. The privilege of discussing the annual financial budget of the state was, for the first time, availed of by the members of the Legislative Council at their meeting held in July 1914. In 1916, Maharaja issued orders sanctioning of a second session of the Assembly in April every year. On the 10th October 1922, when the Dasara session of the Representative Assembly concluded, Sir Albion Banerjee announced that the Maharaja had given his approval to the appointment of a mixed committee of officials and non-officials presided over by Sir Dr. 
Rajendranath Seal, then Vice Chancellor of the University, for the elucidation of all the details connected with the constitution of the Assembly, the electorates, the length and frequency of the sessions, and the procedures of the House. The Sir Bajendranath Seal Committee submitted its report to the government in March 1923 and it was published in April that year to elicit public opinion on the proposals contained in it. After careful consideration of the SEAL Committee report and the public opinion, Maharaja on the 27th October 1923 promulgated two regulations, one relating to the Representative Assembly and the other to the Legislative Council. With this proclamation, Maharaja ordained that the Representative Assembly established by his father by an executive order 42 years ago was for the future to be placed on a statutory basis with enlarged functions. Proclamation also declared that the Legislative Council was also given statutory basis with enlarged strength and powers. In order to increase and widen the electorate, representatives of the urban as well as the rural constituencies in the Legislative Council were returned by direct election. And in the case of members to the Representative Assembly, the existing property qualifications were to be reduced by one half. The franchise was extended to all persons paying income tax. The franchise was also extended to women possessing the qualifications prescribed for voters. On 17th March 1924, Maharaja Nalwadi Krishna Raja inaugurated the new Legislative Council and the Representative Assembly at a joint session held at Mysore. Maharaja while welcoming the members who had been elected by an enlarged electorate under a wider franchise, complimented them on how they're now being regarded as the truer representatives of their constituencies than ever before. And on their having larger opportunities of influencing the decisions of government in accordance with popular demands. I have no doubt that you will use your new powers to strengthen all the beneficent activities in the country to spread education, to diffuse knowledge, to further industrial enterprise, both public and private, and to foster the civic virtues and the spirit of social service. A wise restraint is necessary in expressing your views, exaggeration and violence of speech defeat their own purpose. If every act of yours is guided by common sense, goodwill and useful study of facts and of experience, if your powers are used only for the promotion of the common good, you cannot fail to rise in power and influence. You will help to build up the prosperity and reputation of our state.
and will become custodians with me of its permanent interests. These pearls of wisdom sound almost prophetic and our parliamentarians and legislators have much to learn from the virtues of this advice by a Raja Rishi pronounced almost 100 years ago. From mere deliberative assembly in 1881 to statutory bicameral legislators by 1923, in a mere span of 42 years, Mysore had set an example for the rest of the country. It was only by the Government of Indian Act 1919, British India and its provinces implemented similar constitutional reforms. Indian National Congress itself was founded in 1885. But Mysore had almost achieved a constitutional monarchy which was more akin to the American system of governance and an adult franchise should have been a logical next step. Acceptance of the Miller's Committee report in 1919, which sought to bring a great change in the social structure, was also the first of its kind. However, Mysore could not live in isolation and political developments in British India had profound impact. But at the time of introducing the Montago Chelmsford reforms in 1919, the British government had declared that the commission would be sent to India after 10 years to examine the effects and operations of the constitutional reforms and to suggest more reforms for India. Though Simon Commission was sent to India in 1928, it met with strong opposition by the Indian leaders. The Commission submitted its report in 1930. This was followed by the Roundtable Conferences in London. It is significant that the Maharaja sent his Diwan to attend these conferences. Sir Mirza Ismail represented not only the state of Mysore but also the states of Travancore, Cochin and Pudukota. In his speech at the first conference, Sir Mirza said that by agreeing to join an All India Federation, the ruling princes have rendered incalculable service to their motherland at this most critical juncture in her history. Despite many misgivings and non-cooperation by section of Indian leadership after the White Paper and Joint Parliamentary Committee report, the Government of India Act 1935 received royal assent on 2nd August 1935. The Government of India Act 1935 contemplated a federation of British Indian provinces and Indian states. But as V.P. Menon says in his book, The Transfer of Power in India, the underlying concept of All India Federation was to preserve the essential unity of the country. But it's sad to reflect that in the clash of politics, the struggle of power, the wrangle of ascendancy, 
and the scramble for gains on the part of the political organizations, politicians and princes, the scheme of federation became a tragic casualty. But the final death blow was given by the outbreak of the Second World War, which did not give time to its sponsors to stage even a decent burial. Though the above far-reaching political developments in India overshadowed local aspirations for a while, it was not all hunky-dory either. Mysore Congress egged on by developments in British India and was spearheading similar agitations in Mysore, demanding what was euphemistically called as responsible government. Mysore already had earned the reputation as a model state. Mahatma Gandhi, who had visited Mysore, had even called it as Ramarajya. It was simply a case of legislators seeking direct role to administer the state. Divan Sir Mirza Ismail was a classmate of the Maharaja in the Royal School and had worked all his life in the shadow of the Maharaja as his Huzur secretary, etc. and had already served as the Divan for the longest period. He often deplored the talk of complete democracy, which, according to him, was likely to spread corruption and strife and would neither fill the bellies nor even the aspirations of those who hunger for power. Mysore should not be indulging in slavish imitation of Western theories, he said. This often infuriated the Mysore Congress members, which is reflected in his evocative speech in 1938 by Sri Keti Bashyam Aingar wherein he observed, I say that you treat my soul as a child treats a toy. You say, I will feed you, I will clothe you, I will bathe you, and I will make you happy, but you have done it all according to your likes and fancies. That is all right, as long as people are willing to be guided like that. But today, we do not want to be fed, clothed, or bathed by anybody according to his desire. We want to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, bathe ourselves in the manner we desire. That desire has to be determined by him and not by an outside body, however benevolent it might be. In order to assuage the sentiments of the members, Maharaja on April 1st, 1938, appointed a committee consisting of two officials and 17 non-officials, which included Divi Gundappa, among others, under the chairmanship of Raja Sabha Bhushana Divan Bahadur K.R. Srinivasa Aingar, retired member of the Mysore Executive Council, to examine the question of further constitutional reforms. The report of the committee was submitted on 31st August 1939. The recommendations of the committee, which was accepted by the government, 
was embodied in the Government of Mysore Act 1940, dated 13th of April 1940. Among other things, for the first time, it provided for two members of the legislature to be appointed as members of the Executive Council, which was to be headed by the Divan. Unfortunately, before the above act was implemented, Maharaja, His Highness, Shri Krishna Raja Wadiyar IV passed away on 3rd August 1940. His brother, the Yuva Raja, His Highness, Shri Kantirava Narsim Raja Wadiyar, had predeceased him on 11th March 1940. World War II was still raging and the world was under turmoil. It was under such foreboding situation the 21-year-old son of the Yuvaraja, His Highness Shri Jayacham Raja Wadir, ascended the historic throne of Mysore on 8th September 1940. Perhaps it can be said of the young Maharaja that he was more highly educated and more widely travelled than all his predecessors. Like a commoner, he graduated from the Maharaja's college, Mysore in 1937. After graduation, Mr. Elvin of the Indian Civil Service was appointed his companion to help him acquire the necessary administrative training. One of the first acts of the young Maharaja was to conduct fresh elections and implement the constitutional reforms sanctioned by his revered uncle. In his address to the joint session of the two houses, he observed, The torch of constitutional progress has been handed down to me as a family heritage. It is my ambition, as I am sure it is yours, to ensure that its light does not grow dim, but will burn ever brighter with the passage of time. His Highness Jai Chamraja Wadir was the first Indian king to join the Indian Union through the instrument of accession soon after India achieved independence. He then issued a proclamation dated 29th October 1947 to set up a constituent assembly to frame the constitution for Mysore state after dissolving the representative assembly and the legislative council. The Constituent Assembly, which had been constituted in 1947, became the Provisional Assembly of Mysore until the elections could be held under the Constitution. After merging with India, Jai Chamraja Wadir was appointed Raj Pramok till November 1956. Later, he was made the Governor of the newly carved out Mysore state until 1964. During the just concluded birth centenary of His Highness Jai Chamraja Wadir, the President of India, Sri Ram Nath Kovind, lauded the democratic ethos and culture so deeply rooted in Karnataka, pioneered by the Wadir kings. Can we think as to what is unique about this land that nourishes the best of social values and impulses? That was exactly what drove a Maharaja 
to put his people first. Presently, the legislature of Karnataka consists of two houses, the Legislative Assembly and the Legislative Council. The first sitting of the new assembly was held on 19th December 1956 in the newly built Vidana Sauda. The assembly is now composed of 224 elected members and one nominated member. The strength of the Legislative Council, which was 63 in 1957, is now composed of 75 members. The history of democratic governance can thus be attributed to the vision of the warrior kings and their strong belief in being transparent and accountable to their people. This speech was delivered on June 9, 1941. Let's listen to the speech in the voice of Sri Raja Chandra. Members of the Representative Assembly and the Legislative Council, it affords me sincere pleasure to welcome you to this joint inaugural meeting of the two houses of our legislature and to give you this message of goodwill on the eve of your entering upon the new responsibilities which will be yours hereafter. It is now a little more than 17 years since my beloved uncle, Sri Krishna Raja Vadayar Bahadur IV of the Revere Memory addressed the houses of the legislature introducing a scheme of constitutional reforms. Those reforms were acclaimed as giving the two houses a position of far greater importance than they had till then occupied. The ceremony in which we are taking part today raises them to a still higher level. The government of Mysore Act 1940 may well be regarded as the culmination of a policy initiated by my revered grandfather and developed in the light of his own political insight and rare experience by His Late Highness in order to ensure increased association of the representatives of the people with the government of the state. I feel that in addressing this joint meeting of the Houses today, I am bearing to a further stay the torch of constitutional progress which has been handed out to me as a family heritage. It is my ambition, as I am sure it is yours, to ensure that its light does not grow dim but will burn ever brighter with the passage of time. Those who have watched the origin and the growth of our political institutions have noted that Mysore has always been in the vanguard of progress. Our representative assembly was started 60 years ago. And the principle of representative institution was little known and practiced in this continent, at any rate in India. In later years, the principle of associating representatives of the people with the affairs of the government has been widely applied. In Mysore, it has come to stay, and the manner in which it has worked all these years affords cause for genuine satisfaction. Since 1924, to go no further back, Assembly and the Council have dealt with more than 160 measures of 
legislation including several of great importance and have discussed hundreds of resolutions while the questions put to the government and the representatives made to them run literally into thousands and cover every branch of administration in the discussion of them a spirit of cooperation and a sense of responsibility have rarely been observed the reforms that are now to come into operation are thus a natural corollary to the honorable record established by these bodies and recognition of the experience they have gained in parliamentary methods of business at the same time i am sure that these reforms will be recognized as a generous response to the desire of the important sections of the people for the increased participation in the administration of the state it has been said that a constitution is successful in proportion as it represents not a new creation substituted for an old one but the natural evolution of an existing government and the natural extension of its past tendencies the present reforms are conceived in this spirit at the same time we have not hesitated to adopt rules of procedure and electoral schemes which have been tried in british india as realists we must be ever ready to profit by the experiences of the others as well as our own we will do well to remember that in a state like ours the interest of the people and those of the government are fundamentally identical and that differences in ideology as between different sections are for the most part superficial and transient you will also recognize that to whatever extent you have proved yourself worthy of closer association with the government your claims have been neither denied nor lost sight of on the other hand the sober politician will be struck by the surprising advance that has been made in order to realize the magnitude of this advance you will have only to recall the fact that the representative assembly was first brought into existence in the order in the words of its author that the views and objects of the measures adopted by the government might be better known and appreciated by the people for whose benefit they were intended and that the action of the government should be brought into greater harmony with the wishes and interests of the people from that small beginning the legislative has grown from power to power until now it is to enjoy an effective voice in the shaping of the day to day administration of the state it is needless to mention all the superficial features of the reforms which are being inaugurated today but it will be useful to recount a few of them wider franchise in the case of both the houses substantial increase in their strength larger representation for special interests and minorities and for women representation of the minority communities by the direct election extension of life of each house from 3 to 4 years provisions of a statutory elected majority in the legislative council of nearly two thirds power to elect a non official president and a deputy president of the same body increase power of the representative assembly 
in the matter of legislation and control of state expenditure and freedom of speech and immunity from arrest under certain conditions for members of both the houses these are all calculated to secure to the people and more particularly to those sections which have been relatively neglected in the past an effective voice in the constitutional assemblies of the state above all i am sure you will appreciate the decision to give a place to the elected representatives of the people in my executive council and to entrust them with a regular portfolio of the administration the antithesis that is sometimes set up between official and non official points of view may often lack substance in the conditions of public life prevailing in our state nevertheless the appointment of non official minister is rightly regarded as a reform of a far reaching character for my part i am convinced that a variety of experience on the part of my ministers can only add to the weight and value of the advice that i receive from my council and i take this opportunity of according a very hearty welcome to all the members of that council who have just entered upon their new duties it is now for us all working together with the welfare of our state as our united objective to take steps to ensure that our future is worthy of our past as popularly elected bodies who are embarking on new responsibilities at a remarkable moment of history today many parts of the world are strewn with wrecks of popular institutions some have been destroyed by external aggressors some have collapsed of their own weaknesses the strongest of those that have survived have of their own free will accepted large curtailment of their liberty while the war lasts it may well be asked whether this is a time to embark on a large experiment in the expansion of democratic institution my answer to such a question would be that i am convinced believer in the virtues of democracy and in the qualities of the people of my soul i do not for a moment disguise from myself that the successful conduct of democratic institution especially at a time like the present is a very difficult task that it will require all the best that is in us and especially the tolerance and the consideration for others which are the leading qualities of a truly civilized man but i believe that my people and especially these elected representatives whom i am addressing today will be found to be found to possess those qualities and i am inaugurating these reforms in the confident hope that you and all concerned will display them in the full most of you represent particular areas of the state some of you represent special communities or interests and some may have come here to promote particular policies i urge you while faithfully representing your own constituents never to forget that in all things the state must come first and that if our reforms are to be success each of many castes creeds communities of which the state is composed must feel that its rights are protected and its interests promoted so far as they are consistent 
to the good of the state as a whole. I do not wish to suggest policies to you, but it may it is my hope that the new constitution will be so worked as to ensure and maintain equal opportunity for all. Security and freedom under the law and the rising of the general standard of life by the full development of the great resources with which the state is to bountifully endow. With these objects, let us work together, not for any selfish or sectoral end, but for the good of all and for the true happiness and prosperity of Mysore. One last word regarding the tragedy of the immediate present. While speaking of our achievements in the past and our hopes for the future, we cannot forget the enormous sacrifices which are being made in many parts of the world to save civilization. Forces of destruction have been let loose and it looks as if those who have released them have lost control over the consequences of their recklessness. All human comfort and safety have been jeopardized to a degree unknown to history and the danger to peaceful persons, which till lately was visible only on a distant horizon, is now at our own doors. No well-wisher of human freedom and ordered progress, no patriot seeking India's safety and happiness can afford at this hour of imminent peril to exaggerate the importance of local question or to fail to do all that lies in his power to achieve victory by collective and individual effort. When victory has been won, then will be the time for us fully to enjoy. In an atmosphere of undisturbed peace, the fruits of constitutional progress. Meanwhile, our perspective must be conditioned by the imperative needs of the present situation. It behoves every true lover of his country to bend his whole energy to the strengthening of India's defenses and to the equipping of our soldiers who are fighting India's battles on foreign soils. And this applies just as much to those of us who are living peacefully at home as to those who are making munitions or preparing for the battle. Let our watchwords be economy and production in every possible direction, but most of all, in those that will help India to play her full part in the war. I wish you Godspeed in the discharge of our duties and the responsibilities. May God grant that as a result of your united efforts, devotion to duty and high patriotism, our beloved state may, in the days to come, make yet more rapid progress in all directions and that the new constitution may help to train the people in the virtues of citizenship which are the only enduring foundation and ultimate justification of any political system.